Well, again, good morning. Hey, it's great to see you here. Thanks for joining us. My name is George Davis. Welcome to the start of Crew Week. And uh, if you walk through the building, you got to see the sub. Make sure you see the sub before you go. As our, our, our facility has been transformed to a kind of down-under theme, and we're looking forward to it. And uh, I just want to thank those of you who are going to be serving. And in a few moments, we're actually going to have a time of commissioning for you as well as for our students who are going to be serving in different parts of the country this summer. This morning, we are continuing our journey through Titus. We're taking two months during the summer to go through the book of Titus. So I'm going to ask you if you've got a Bible in front of you or on a mobile device to turn with me to Titus chapter 1 in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a pew rack somewhere close by. As you're turning there, let me ask you this question. Uh, can you think of someone in your life, a, a teacher, a mentor, a boss, a supervisor, a church leader, can you think of someone whom you would describe as, as being an effective leader? And by that, I mean someone who through their leadership has had a positive impact on your life directly. Hopefully all of us can think of at least one person in the course of our lives that we would put in that category. I was thinking about that question this week, and interestingly, one of the first leadership lessons I can remember learning actually came from the sixth grade. When I was in the sixth grade, due to kind of different sizes of the grades, my sixth grade class actually met in the third grade wing of my elementary school. And I remember that I, I still have this memory. I'm not sure if this was the first day of school or if it was right before school when you found out who your teacher was and all of that. I remember how disappointed I was as a sixth grader that I was going to go through this year being surrounded by three classes of third graders. Come on, I'm in sixth grade. But what I also remember about that year was my teacher, Mr. Ramsey, who, I, I, in retrospect, just a phenomenal teacher. And even though our class had to deal, deal with some different dynamics because, you know, we had all these third grade classes around us, he made it interesting. He made it fun. Even in me personally, he saw an interest in learning that he encouraged and stretched and developed. So when I think about leaders, here's just one example, and I could give you others of leaders in my life who, because of their leadership, had a very positive impact on who I am today. Hopefully, you can think of someone like that as well. And the reason I ask you that is if, if you've experienced good leadership uh, in, in, you know, in your community, in your family, in your workplace, in a school environment, if you have experienced good leadership, you realize the difference that it can make. And this morning, we're continuing our journey through the book of Titus. Titus is this book where this early protege of the Apostle Paul is being charged with, with really helping others learn to live well and do good. And very early in the book, if, if Titus is, is going to do that well, it's going to, require good, it's going to require good leaders. He's going to have to work with and develop good leaders. So the paragraph we're looking at this morning is all about leadership in the church and the type of leaders that we need in a church context. But here's the deal, and I hope this is what I want you to see as we come away from this passage. Even if you're not in a formal position of leadership, this passage has some amazing implications for you as well that we're going to see in a moment. 
So with that in mind, let's come to Titus chapter 1. Now here's the backdrop again. Titus is, is working on this island, the, the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And, and the, the message of Christ has come here. So there's this kind of, it's the early stages of the kind of the Christian movement on Crete. And now Paul's associate Titus really has the, the charge of fanning the flame of that early Christian movement. And that will include dealing with various issues that need to be addressed. But it also includes developing churches, what we would call house churches. And if this is going to take place, these, these churches need leaders. So notice what Paul says in verse five of chapter one. He says, the reason I left you in Crete, right? Here's Titus, here's your responsibility. I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. And I think this is a variety of issues that need to be addressed in the early Christian movement there. But for that to take place, you also have to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus, there are a lot of things that need to be addressed as Christianity now spreads throughout this, this, this island of Crete. But for that to really happen, for these things to happen, you're going to need to continue to develop small groups of, of Christians into churches, and those churches need qualified leaders. That's what's going on here. If you would actually like to see what what this looks like, you you can look no further than our work in Haiti. For those of you familiar with our work in Haiti, our main partner in Haiti is the STEP Seminary. And over the last few years, one of the things we've been doing with STEP is helping the seminary kind of influence its surrounding community by building homes for different people in the surrounding neighborhoods. Some of you have been on work crews that have gone down there to be a part of that. And as the seminary has been working in the community and we've come alongside them in this effort, relationships have been built and people have heard about Jesus. And the result has been not just these homes being built, but the result is there are now seven, that's right, seven small groups of Christians that are meeting in Bible studies. This is a picture that was taken just a few days ago of one of these groups. And in, in point of fact, these, these Bible studies are becoming house churches. And there's actually an individual who's now overseeing that, you know, to help this continue. And of course, along the way, that, that, that entails developing good leaders for these different house churches. And that's exactly what Titus is charged with doing here. So the appointment of leaders or elders was an, a priority given to Titus. So he's given the assignment, then he's told what to look for. Here's your assignment. Now let me, let me give you some guidance in what to look for, and that begins in verse 6. And notice, first of all, as Paul gives these, you might call them qualifications, and he gives a very similar list in 1 Timothy. Um, as he gives these qualifications, he begins just with marriage and family relationships. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So there's the expectation of, of faithfulness in marriage if this, if this man is married. Also, just the expectation that he has invested in his family in a way um, that is positive so that the kids haven't simply rejected the faith or rejected the family. Then as the passage continues, notice that there... There are certain traits that need to be avoided. Again, verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. 
Now, remember, Crete in the first century is really a culture known for kind of being a place where anything goes in the pursuit of getting ahead. Crete was known in Roman culture to be the place where whatever it takes for you to get ahead, be dishonest, cheat, cut corners, whatever it takes, that is acceptable in this unique island culture. And arguably, some of these negative character traits that that Paul says you need to avoid were pretty common in this culture. And yet Paul is saying, look, this may be broadly acceptable to the people on this island, but this is not what we need in the church. So, So you move from marriage and family expectations to kind of negative traits to avoid. Then you move to positive traits that you want to be looking for. He says, rather, verse 8, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then you get to a statement that is foundational to the responsibility of elders, and that is he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. In other words, these... These individuals need to understand the gospel, the truth of the gospel, so that they can encourage others in it. And notice it's encouraged by sound doctrine. And the phrase sound doctrine here doesn't simply mean orthodoxy. It means healthy doctrine. That's the way this term is used. And and I think the idea is that the, the truth of the gospel is the truth that leads to human flourishing. So they need to be able to understand and encourage others in the gospel and the message of the gospel and also to refute those who oppose it. And Paul's just acknowledging the reality of false teaching and and kind of unhealthy ideas that can slide into any church community. In fact, as we'll see next Sunday, uh, this just leads into a particular discussion of false teachers in this context and how they need to be addressed. Now, the New Testament uses three different terms kind of for the leadership of a local church that can be used, it seems, interchangeably. Pastor, elder, overseer. And you see two of these terms in this passage. You see reference to an elder and an overseer. In thinking about this role, pastor, elder, overseer, one of my colleagues has has argued that in, in the pages of Scripture, This leadership role really revolves around three themes, the themes of leading, of feeding, and protecting. And you see that kind of in in this passage as well. There's the expectations that elders provide leadership, and that comes with authority in a church context. Paul says that they are are the managers of of God's household, and that, that comes with a certain amount of responsibility, although it's delegated, right? It's under the leadership of God as with Christ as the chief shepherd. So there's, there's a leadership function. There's also kind of that feeding function, which we've already seen as, as he talks about uh, elders encouraging others with sound doctrine. And there's a, that protection piece of, of helping guard the church against false teaching. So these are important dynamics and, and important elements in, in this responsibility of being a leader, particularly an elder in a local church. Now, And in terms of our context, here's how we, in essence, flesh out the responsibility of our elder team. Our elders have the responsibility for spiritual oversight and church health. So, for instance, a conversation our elder teams recently started is just this conversation about, you know, in the midst of 
a very changing cultural dynamics and in the midst of, of a cultural moment that seems to be very divisive and divided, how, how do we just help people engage that well? So we started that conversation and, and we'll be talking to you more about that, I think, as we move into the next year. We also have, as elders, responsibility for theological boundaries. And once again, right, the Bible gives us that responsibility of protecting the church against false teaching. The elders have the responsibility for direction, major initiatives, for organizational oversight, and also to oversee and advise the senior pastor. So as a senior pastor, the elder team is the team to whom I am immediately accountable to. Now, as, as you look at this, this paragraph in Titus and the similar one in 1 Timothy, obviously there's a description of some of the key responsibilities of elders, but notice there really is a focus on character. So why is that? Why is there such an emphasis on the character traits of a leader, of an elder? Well, I think one of the reasons is this. Paul understood that as... (laughs) As the gospel message goes out into a very diverse culture, as the gospel message goes out into a culture that easily can reject the reality of Christianity, it's important that leaders do not bring the message into disrepute. I like like to think of it this way. (laughs) If people are going to be offended, let them be offended by the gospel not by the fact that I'm a jerk, not by the fact that there are clear inconsistencies in my life. In other words, I I think as, as, as Paul is influential in the development of these early churches and the leadership, the expectation is we need people that are living out the message. They're not just teaching the message. They are living it out because if they don't live it out, it brings the gospel into the realm of being criticized by other people. So there there really is an apologetic function of these character traits. But I think there's also another dimension to these character traits. And this is really where you come in. Because maybe up to this point, it's like, well, I don't don't, don't know who the elders are. I don't, you know, that's just not my thing. But even if this feels like this passage has nothing to do with you, here's where it does. One of the reasons that Paul focuses so much on character is the idea that elders are to model what should be developing in the church at large. In other words, uh, Paul sets the bar high, it feels like, in terms of character Because the expectation is this, we need elders who model this because this is what God desires to do in the lives of all the people in the church community. So ultimately, when you read this list, this isn't just about elder qualifications. This isn't just something that we, you know, we vote on elders every year, that kind of thing, and affirm elders at our congregational meeting, which we've just done. But this is also about you if you're a follower of Christ. Paul is setting the bar high for our leaders because this is what he wants to see happen in your life as well. Now, with that in mind, let's now kind of go back to the list for a moment and notice how he, de- he, how he begins the list. He begins by saying this, an elder must be what? 
blameless. Now, just let that sink in for a moment, right? I mean, it's one thing to say we need godly, godly men who are blameless. It's another thing to say, you know, this is really God's vision for my life as a follower of Jesus. Have you thought in those terms before? And if you notice carefully, he repeats the term in in verse 7. Now, grammatically, I think you can make the argument that blameless is really the umbrella. It's the head term in all of these qualifications. In other words, Paul says, we need leaders who are blameless. And this is what we want to foster in the lives of people. And the other, other qualities are really just bullets underneath that heading of what it looks like to be blameless in family relationships and other relationships, what it looks like to be blameless internally in terms of holiness and uprightness. But let's be honest, if we're, really, if we're really straight with one another, this passage all of a sudden can become very demotivating, can't it? Blameless, really? I have to acknowledge, you know, as a pastor, this is one of those, this is one of those passages of Scripture that can be very weighty. Because it's not like I look in the mirror and this is the first term that comes to my mind. Blameless. And that's probably true with you as well, right? There are probably different ways you would introduce yourself in terms of what you do or maybe even character traits, you know, introvert, extrovert, fun-loving. Or, but my guess is in introducing yourself, if you ever were asked to, you know, list out five quality traits that are at work in your life, my guess is blameless wouldn't be on the list. And yet here, here's Paul saying, this is, this is what should characterize our leaders. But it should characterize our leaders because this is what we want to see take place in the lives of all the people who become part of the movement of Christianity. For instance, even in writing right to Timothy, Paul says, look, I want you to take your character seriously because you are to be an example to others. That's, that's an underlying expectation in these letters. So what, what is... What do we do with this? Do we simply walk away defeated? Do we simply dismiss it as hopelessly idealistic? Well, before we do that, let me see if I can explain actually what Paul is getting at. Because remember, first of all, remember Paul is writing a situation that is very chaotic. I mean, all all the potential leaders in these churches grew up in a very chaotic culture. They grew up in this culture where anything goes, and that's part of their life story. So all of these leaders are going to be people who are works in progress. Furthermore, we know from other writings that Paul is very specific, that, that all ascended comes short of the glory of God. So his, his expectation is not perfection. That's not what he's talking about. And understand what Paul means here. I think it is helpful to look at a couple of other places where he uses this term. He doesn't use this term often. But... It, but in two critical places, 1 Corinthians 2, Colossians 1, Paul uses this term as he's looking to the future. And here's how he uses the term. Right? Remember, Paul is driven by the fact that we're part of this bigger story that, that produces in us a blessed hope that one day God is going to ultimately fulfill his promises. And in these other passages, he's, he, looks, he looks to the future and he says this to these early followers of Christ. He says, one day God is going to present you blameless. And and what Paul is saying there is through the work of Jesus Christ, through the work of the gospel, 
God now sees us through the work of the cross. God now sees us as blameless, and one day he's going to present us as blameless, but furthermore, through the work of the gospel, he's now bringing about transformation that is moving us in that direction. So when Paul talks about leaders being blameless, when he sets the expectation that this is to be at work within the church community, it's not about perfection, but it is about this. It's about the expectation that these leaders exhibit signs of God's grace. Signs that they're being transformed in a godly direction. See, this this term's not about perfection, it's about direction. And simply put, what Paul is saying is we need people in whose lives we see evidence of the work of God's grace. That was his expectation of elders because that is his expectation of us as a church community. And with that in mind, let me just draw out a couple of implications of what this means for you and me. First of all, Understand, once again, well, it just looks like a job description. It just just looks like character traits. I get that. But understand the implication is God's grace is to be at work in all areas of my life. God's grace is to be at work in in all areas of my life. I mean, notice how extensive these qualities that, that Paul is looking for. Notice how extensive the list is. Right? He talks about kind of the most personal relationships in our lives. He talks about how we engage other people and what that would look like just in terms of ongoing everyday interactions. He talks about what's going on internally in terms of holiness and uprightness. And this, this conversation is, is very broad and comprehensive. And it is broad and comprehensive because the expectation is that God's grace is to be at work in all areas of my life. And my guess is if you, if you seriously kind of work through this list and these different headings, different character traits, you're going to see areas of growth in your own life. And you may think, well, this is, this is just the point where George says we need to try harder, right, at changing these areas. But actually, that's not what I'm going to challenge you to do. I'm not going to challenge you to try harder. What I am going to challenge you to do is to, I'm going to challenge you to have a robust understanding of God's grace. Because here's the deal. Often in Christian circles, when we talk about God's grace, here's something we will say. We will say this. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, right? We've all, I mean, if you're a Christian, at some point you've heard that. At some point you have said that. And that is absolutely true. But notice when I say that, when I say I'm just a sinner saved by grace, what I'm really focusing on is God's mercy. Right? I'm focusing on the fact that through the work of Jesus Christ, the penalty for my sin is no longer held against me. 
I am no longer under God's wrath as someone separated from him because of my sin. That the penalty has been taken on by God himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And and I'm a recipient of God's forgiveness. I am a recipient of his mercy. That's 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 what I mean when I'm saying I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It's not about my effort. It's not about my achievements. It's about receiving this gift of forgiveness made possible through God's mercy. Now, all of that is true, but understand this. If we're not careful, it's like we shrink God's grace to only see that dimension of it. And all of that is part of God's grace. But as the Bible talks about God's grace, God's initiative in our lives made possible through the work of Christ and now applied by the work of the Holy Spirit, as as the Bible talks about God's grace, It's transformational. It just, it just doesn't stop at the moment of salvation. It's, right, it's, it's, it's ongoing. And to understand that, that God, God's grace is to be at work in all areas of my life, you just need to, you just need to have a, a robust biblical understanding of God's grace. For instance, look at how Paul talks about God's grace in the next chapter. We're going to come to this in a couple of weeks. Now notice this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, period. Now that's how we normally talk about God's grace, right? It offers salvation, it offers mercy, it offers forgiveness. But notice, that's not where Paul stops when he talks about God's grace. He continues because he also says that it, that is the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Now, do you get that? For Paul, grace isn't just, yeah, I'm a sinner saved by grace. End of story. Grace is the reality that God has now brought me into this new relationship. And through this new relationship, his work is continuing to transform me. It's teaching me to move away from ungodliness. It's bringing about transformation in in my life internally. And then it's leading to good works in how I engage others around me. And that's really the bottom line message of, of Titus, right? Living well doing good, and it is empowered by God's grace. Do you see that? To take this passage seriously, we, we need a robust understanding of God's grace. And maybe to help you think about it, I think maybe the simplest challenge that I would give to you from this passage would be this. Don't just rest in God's mercy. Lean into his grace. Don't just rest in his mercy. Lean into his grace. See, remember what Paul does in chapter 2, and I can't wait to get to it when we get there in a few weeks, but it's, it's, yes, God's grace brings salvation. It brings forgiveness. It brings mercy. But but the work of God has an ongoing 
reality in my life to teach me to move against ungodliness and to move me in a direction where more and more I'm reflecting the character of Christ and then I'm becoming zealous to do good works. And notice carefully that many of the themes in in this paragraph in chapter 2 echo the themes you see in chapter 1 in the qualification for elders. In terms of saying no to certain things and developing other traits. And and so what Paul is saying is these qualifications that I'm giving you for leadership are, are qualifications that flow out of leaning into God's grace. So don't just rest in his mercy. Lean into his grace. So maybe I, you know, maybe I am someone, for instance, that can be overbearing and quick-tempered like Paul warns against in this passage. But but moving forward, it's just not a matter of trying harder. It's about leaning into the grace of God, leaning into the gospel, creating habits and patterns in my life where I'm really opening myself to, to God's ongoing transforming work. I mean, getting into scripture and just being open to what God will teach me in those pages. And one of the things that will happen is the more I get into scripture, the more I just see the reality of who God is. And as I, as I just take time to meditate on that, to reflect on that, even the way God is described in the pages of Titus, it, at some point, it, over time, it just should, it should start to foster gratitude. And can I suggest to you that the more grateful we become, the more we can be empowered to move away from things like anger and being quick-tempered. Because in my own life, what I realize is those things can be, those things can be driven by selfishness sometimes. There are clearly appropriate moments where we need to be angry. But at least often in my own life, if it's the quick-tempered piece is, is often motivated by selfishness. But as, as I'm leaning into God's grace and the reality of who he is that I can trust him, but also the reality of what he's done and doing in such a way that it just it develops gratitude, that's going, to, that's going to bring about change at the deepest level of who I am. And it's not, about, it's not about just trying harder. It's not about beating myself up. It's about leaning into his grace. So one of the foundational implications of this passage is God's grace is to be at work in every part of my life. Now, of course, in saying that, I realize that, you know, that the how-to piece, what it looks like, that raises all sorts of questions. And we'll deal with some of those when we get to chapter 2. But the fact that when we think about leaning into God's grace, it, it generates all sorts of questions. That, that actually leads to the second implication, and that is this. In following Christ, to live it, I have to see it. In following Christ, to live it, I have to see it. Remember, I think one of the reasons we are given these qualifications for leaders in the local church community is the fact that they are to be examples of what this looks like. And the fact that we need examples just gets back to the reality that, you know what? I need to, I need to see what this looks like. I need to see what it looks like to be a student who follows Christ. I need to see what it looks like in the marketplace to be a person of integrity. I've just entered parenting. I need to see what that looks like. 
in a culture that's going to bombard my kids with all sorts of different messages. I'm entering a new season of life. What might that look like? I'm preparing for retirement. How do I do that well? I mean, right? I mean, as we seek to lean into God's grace, the, the different life circumstances that we go through generate all sorts of questions. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be connected in a local church community. Because to live it, I need to see it. Even for me personally, you know, as my wife and I are now kind of preparing for the empty nest stage of life, it's just been so helpful at times to have conversations with other friends and colleagues who are a little farther along in life's journey. So if I'm going to lean into God's grace, I, I need to see it. This is one reason later this summer we're going to encourage you to join a Live, Love, Lead group, to get connected in one of our group environments. This is one of the reasons we provide different types of group environments for you to be a part of, so that you can build relationships with other people, to have these conversations, to wrestle with. In this situation, in this circumstance, what does it look like to lean into his grace? Now, having said that, I realize sometimes church gets messy. Sometimes group environments get messy. They don't work out well. But even if that's been your experience in the past, I want to encourage you just to consider trying it out again. Because sometimes in the midst of these relationships, just God just shows up, and this becomes just the channel of his grace into our lives just to help us see what it looks like. And you, you need to be a part of that. Now, obviously, you know, the expectation, as Paul gives it, was the, I mean, this was written to small churches, house churches, and, and the elders were in relationship with everyone. And in, in our context, we've got a small elder team and a large church community, so it's going to look differently. But, you know, as an elder team, what we're committed to, among other things, is trying to develop a, a culture where we're developing people developing leaders so that as you get connected in some kind of group environment, there'll be leaders in that environment that that really are being encouraged and challenged to walk with Jesus, to live, love, and lead. So you need to understand if if you're going to live it, you need to see it. Thinking along those lines, this this is one of the reasons I'm excited about the students that we're going to be commissioning in a few moments. So one of the reasons why I'm excited about the things that are going to take place in our facility this week with crew, because you see, as, as, as our students are working in different environments over this summer, they're going, to be, they're going to be working with adults who are building into them, giving them opportunities to live out the gospel. As, as our kids are here this week, they're going to see other people who are are kind of committed to Jesus and, you know, in age-appropriate ways, get to look into the lives of other people and find out what God is doing. And, and all of these are environments that encourage people to see it so they can live it. So here's Paul's, here's Paul's expectation. Paul says, we need need healthy leaders in the church. Titus, that's got to be a priority for you as you're providing leadership to the Christian movement in Crete. We need healthy leaders. And in saying that, can I just encourage you that let this be a reminder to pray for those of us in leadership, to pray for our staff, to pray for our elders and the responsibilities that we have. 
But in saying that, I encourage you to also see that Paul sets the bar high because this is what's to be happening in your life as well. Your life is to be a place where God's grace is at work. Your life is to be a place where God's grace is at work. With that in mind, can I, can I just pray for you right now? Join me in prayer. Gracious God, as, uh, as we work our way through this book and see the expectations of leadership, first of all, I do pray for our elder team. I pray for the new guys that are going to be joining our team as we begin a new term in July. And I, I pray for us individually and corporately that we would be challenged in an ongoing way by the expectations and qualifications that are listed in this passage. But Father, I also pray for us more broadly as a church to realize that we we are given these expectations for leaders because these are the qualities that are to be nurtured and encouraged throughout the church at large. And so may, may this passage challenge us to see that your grace really is to be at work in every area of our lives. So we need to lean into that. Father, may that stretch us, may that challenge us, but may that also encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name.